Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. Guys, I don't know if you've noticed recently, but there's a whole bunch of stuff happening with Elizabeth Warren and all this uh, recreational genomics testing stuff that we talked about on an earlier episode. Oh, yeah. I don't think we have time to record a whole episode on that, though. Mostly because we already did. (laughs) (laughs) So what you're saying is listeners could refer back to our episode on personal genomics testing or... We'll include some links in our show notes for this episode for those of you who are interested in pursuing this in more detail. Look at the show notes. What are we doing in this episode, Joe? So today we're going to start to address the long saga of race and intelligence. This is a really long story. People have been talking about how race and intelligence must be linked together for a very long time. And it makes sense that they've been linked for so long for two reasons, I think. One, we've never really come up with a way to effectively measure either race or intelligence. Though people have been trying to measure them anyway. True. Unsuccessfully. And two, they're things that your average layperson just takes to be sort of natural fixed categories. Most people never question the idea that there's something biological called race. And in the same way, most of us don't question the idea that there's something innate called intelligence either. And when we're born, we get some race maybe just to check off on a census form, and we get some degree of intelligence, maybe like an IQ number. So we're comfortable talking about why race is a thing that gets built out of other people's perceptions and cultures, but not necessarily biology. Does that mean we're going to have to do the same thing now about intelligence? Yeah. That seems difficult. Tell me about (laughs) it. It's totally difficult. It might take us a while to get there. It might not get there in this episode, but it's worth it. On a personal note, did you know that I missed one of the most important moments in the history of race and intelligence in the 20th century way back in my youth? Wait, wait, what are you talking about? Oh, you haven't heard Jim's Jensen story. Arthur Jensen, the, the race and IQ guy? Yeah. Well, this is what was happening. On the morning of May 15th, 1969... I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I was taking a handball class for the PE requirement. (laughs) What's handball? I don't even know what that is. I think there are lots of handball players, Joe. What? What are you talking about? I don't know handball. Okay. Anyway, 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 back to the story. Yeah, handball. After I finished playing, the courts are under the baseball field. They're actually underground, and they're about a block and a half from Sproul Plaza. And as I came up out of the courts... I headed up to Telegraph Avenue up by the plaza to go back to my car to head home. And just as I was doing that, the crowds that had been at a rally at Sproul Plaza started to head to People's Park down Telegraph Avenue. At that point, I could already smell the tear gas in the air, but that wasn't very uncommon for that time and place. That was something I was used to, but I wasn't used to hearing shotgun blasts. Whoa, shotgun blasts. Yeah, it was a little scary. So as, as I heard those, I pushed my way into a storefront. And I hid out until the Alameda County deputies quit shooting and chasing the protesters. In all of this craziness, I never noticed the signs that some of the students from Students for a Democratic Society were holding up demanding the firing of a professor in the College of Education. Mm. But really, you need to cut me some slack. You have to understand, at this point in my educational career, in addition to trying to adjust to life after the Navy, taking a full course load at Berkeley... 
and waiting for my GI Bill to finally kick in. My wedding was coming up in just six weeks. I dodged tear gas from both helicopters and grenade launchers <laughs> on campus, and my introductory class in physical anthropology had been moved to another classroom four months earlier because the auditorium in Wheeler Hall was the sign of a firebombing. That basically sounds like a regular day at Alabama. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, <Oregon> yeah. <laughs> but wait, wait, wait. This is where Arthur Jensen comes in, oh, isn't yeah, it? yeah. Yes, yes, finally. Yeah, sorry. I was just giving you that background to try and account for why I missed this very important event in the 20th century on race and intelligence. The SDS protesters were reacting to Arthur Jensen, who had just published How Much Can We Boost IQ and Scholastic Achievement, his major monograph, two months earlier. The piece was reigniting the, quote, scientific debate about race and intelligence. Jensen, for the first time in his career, was pushing a very genetic view of IQ, and he extended this view to account for the test score differences and differences in success in life between blacks and whites in the U.S. He argued that the government shouldn't bother to put money into programs for disadvantaged minorities because their inferior genetics would make it a waste of money. Mm -hmm. And he said minority kids shouldn't have high aspirations anyway because they needed to figure out how to be happy with their genetically determined inferior social positions. Dang, that must have been what really stoked the protests, right? Absolutely. People were going nuts. So I was there at Berkeley in 1969. I literally walked right past people holding these signs, and I could have been a witness to history, but I whiffed. It was, it was the late 60s. You know, things were a little strange back then. In my defense, though, I did realize what was going on a few years later when the protesters came out again against the Nobel awardee and Stanford physicist William Shockley, who would periodically come over to Berkeley to share his uber-racist ideas about skin color and intelligence. Man, some stuff changes and then some stuff doesn't, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, the late 60s might have been weird, but... That doesn't really explain Arthur Jensen. He was just reviving an older debate, right? The roots go way back. So is today going to be going back to the racial roots of the IQ test in the early 20th century? Earlier. Thugheads? <laughs> well, we do still owe our listeners a thughead story, but nope, earlier. Lord Mimbato. No, my God, no. We're not talking about him anymore. Never. Oh, come on. We need to start with your friend and mine, that wonderful founding father, Thomas Jefferson, and his interaction with a man by the name of Benjamin Banneker. Oh, yeah. This is a good story. This is the same Benjamin Banneker that Hillary Green talked about in our last episode, right? That's him. Eric, would you tell us the story? Okay, I can do the Banneker story. Well, according to the historian's best accounts, Benjamin Banneker was a free man of African descent who was living on a tobacco farm in Baltimore County in the 1700s. Historians think that Banneker's father was a slave named Robert who had purchased his own freedom. And his mother was probably a woman named Mary, who was an Englishwoman also of African descent, who came to Baltimore. Now, Benjamin himself was almost entirely self-taught, but he had some phenomenal technical abilities. For instance... He once fashioned an entire working clock out of wood, and he was able to do that after basically just looking at a pocket watch, which, of course, is not made out of wood. And as an adult, his neighbor lent him a telescope and some star charts, and so Banneker taught himself astronomy, and he made several predictions about eclipses and other astronomical events. Again, no familiarity with this before just picking up these books. 
So he uses this knowledge to create a sophisticated almanac, which he was able to publish from 1792 to 1797. And then, I don't know if it's related to it or not, but somehow he also got involved in the surveying that surveyed the land that eventually would become Washington, D.C. So Hillary talked about the almanac, but the reason why he matters for a story about intelligence is because of what he did after coming across Thomas Jefferson's 1783 notes on the state of Virginia, which Hillary also mentions. That's where Jefferson laid out scientific reasons why, even if emancipated, he thought black slaves could not be integrated into American society. Let me take a guess. It's about hair and skin color, something about that makes you unfit for our society. Is that it? Of course, yes. Blah. But Jefferson also said there were a bunch of temperamental and physical differences between black and white people. He talked about the structure of the heart, the ability to regulate heat, the amount of sleep black people need compared to white people. Should be much less, according to him. And of course, Jefferson focused on mental differences, too. Here's a quote from him. Eric, do you want to read it as our residential quote reader? <clears throat> in memory, they are equal to whites. In reason, much inferior, as I think one could scarcely be found capable of tracing and comprehending the investigations of Euclid. And in imagination, they are dull, tasteless. He also anticipated some of the craniometry work that was done by Charles White that we talked about in our last Enlightenment episode. Oh, yeah. So this is all the stuff about how black people are closer to animals, so they must have more acute senses than white people, except for when it comes to mental senses, apparently. Go figure. We talked more about how those assumptions about African bodies worked with Dr. Green in the last episode, too. The funny thing is that little allusion to Euclid that Jefferson makes right there, that's interesting for this story because if you're going to do surveying or astronomy you have to understand euclidean geometry now granted that's not sufficient because could you imagine if we sent out our undergrads <laughs> who have had geometry <laughs> and then just said hey go do a survey or predict an eclipse or something anyway, i could do that this is this is the stuff that banneker goes after thomas jefferson on he he wrote to jefferson who was then secretary of state in August of 1791, and he sent him a preliminary copy of that almanac. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically in that letter, Banneker says, hey, look, I wasn't even given the same educational opportunities as white people, and yet I'm doing sophisticated astronomy. Why in the world would you say that blacks are intellectually inferior? And besides, Thomas Jefferson, wasn't it you who wrote All Men Are Created Equal? Burn. He has a point. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, to his credit, Secretary of State Jefferson did write back just a few days later, claiming to have sent the almanac to the head of the Academy of Sciences in Paris. I'm a little amazed at Jefferson's response, to be honest, which was appropriately sheepish. He admitted that Banneker's almanac was a good piece of evidence that perhaps black people aren't intellectually inferior. Still, I, I don't know in the end if it really mattered that much. I mean... This is a great story, but by the time we hit the 19th century, the racial hierarchy of intelligence seems to have been set. Uh, absolutely. Intelligence ranking by race began earlier than that during the Enlightenment with some of the people that we've talked about in this podcast series before, like Linnaeus and Kant. And we've also talked about Samuel George Morton and his skull measurements in our episode on polygenism and monogenism in the 19th century. While mm. Morton didn't personally tie differences in skull size between races directly to variation in intelligence. In his major work, Crania Americana, there was an appendix that he included by the phrenologist George Combe, where Combe makes the connection explicitly 
between cranial capacity and intelligence. Whites had the largest cranial capacity, so they were the smartest. Dark-skinned people had the smallest cranial capacity, so they had less ability. And of course, Morton was by no means the only so-called expert in the 19th century trying to make rankings of race by intelligence seem like it was science. So another figure we could mention would be the French Count Arthur de Gabineau in the 1850s, who ranked races by the number of sophisticated civilizations they had created, of course, according to his definition of what sophisticated means. We'll talk more about him in another episode. But it was really the cousin of Charles Darwin, a man named Francis Galton, who became the key figure in modern scientific debates surrounding intelligence. I know Galton. He's the eugenics guy, right? Well, yeah. um, He did coin the term eugenics in the 1880s. But even before that, he was totally obsessed with demonstrating that intelligence is a hard trait passed along from parent to child, the same way that physical characteristics are passed along from parent to child. In articles, and especially this book that he writes in 1869 called Hereditary Genius, an Essay into Its Laws and Consequences, Mm. Galton examined the lineages of a bunch of groups of people, judges and statesmen and poets and scientists and painters and other elite people. And weirdly enough, in that group, he puts a chapter on wrestlers of the North Country. Very elite. I don't know what that has to do with. (laughs) But in any case, what he's trying to do there is to assert that in every case, nature trumps nurture when it comes to intelligence. Galton promoted a view that ability was inherited and he created and administered some of the first mental tests to try and come up with a way to measure this. He was the measurement guy, remember. Mm. These were largely tests of reaction times, sound and sight acuity, color sense. He was big on to discriminating between the weights of different things. He assumed that all of these tests of the nervous system were somehow linked to the intellect and to success in life, just as earlier workers had assumed that skull measurements were associated. You know, weirdly, I don't think Galton was that much into the skull measurement stuff, which surprises me given how much that he measured everything else. Do we know why? I'm not sure, but it couldn't be because he was somehow less racist than the people who measured skulls. He wrote this article called Africa for the Chinese. It was actually published (laughs) in the London Times in 1873. And he says in that article... That essentially the British should take people from China and import them into Africa and then help the Chinese displace Africans because Chinese are smarter and more industrious and easier to control than Africans. So pretty racist. Racist. (laughs) But probably the easiest explanation is just that he avoided skull measurements because he had a small skull. Wouldn't have (laughs) ranked very well on the scale there. (laughs) Also, as a young man, when he was at odds, he had consulted a phrenologist, and the phrenologist told him he wasn't really suited for a life of the mind. Whoa. And since he considered himself to be eminently suited for that, he assumed that skull size and shape had nothing to do with intellectual huh. accomplishment. Hmm. That's ironic. <laughs> nope. We got to get to the 20th century. There's several new developments in the 20th century in intelligence testing. And those end up becoming core pieces of this race and intelligence debate. I think one of the most important ones is simply that idea of Galton's that ability, like intelligence, is a heritable trait. The English psychologist Charles Spearman took up the challenge from Galton to discover measurements that would correlate with what Spearman was calling general intelligence. 
like I said, Galton was particularly fond of these measurements of sense that uh, we talked about, his mental tests. And in Spearman's study published in 1904, General Intelligence, Objectively Determined and Measured, he conducted tests among school children on the island of Guernsey out in the middle of the English Channel. He found that he could demonstrate a statistical relationship between class grades and other abilities. Looking at his findings, he hypothesized a general intelligence factor behind what he was considering thinking activities and a specific intelligence behind other types of activities that required less thought. The general factor, later labeled as lowercase g, would become the holy grail that psychologists then tried to measure with the intelligence tests that came after that. G, huh? Yeah. So at the same time that Spearman is molesting Guernsey school children, (laughs) two other other guys, these are French guys, Alfred Bonnet and Theodore Simon— we're putting together their own test of intelligence, and their methodology seems simple enough. They believe that the older a student was, the more questions she or he should be able to answer correctly. Easy enough. The number mm. of correct answers was then used to estimate what they called the mental age of the child. And then they lined up the mental age with the student's chronological age, the number of times they'd been around the sun. If the mental age was too far behind the chronological age, Binet and Simone labeled that child, and this is their term, retarded. Now, it's important to point out that the original motivation behind their study was really to lobby the French government for more funds to help mentally disabled children and really more sensitive training for classroom teachers who dealt with those children. They really were not trying to study intelligence per se. But their work, again, one of those deep ironies of history... Totally. Their work ends up getting used in a way they would have disagreed with, as often happens. That's partly because while Spearman was working in the UK and Simone and Benet in France, the US, on the other hand, was developing a whole educational industrial complex to make use of that general intelligence, that lowercase g, idea. The three biggest names in this movement were H.H. Goddard, Louis Terman, and Robert M. Yerkes. I want to talk about Goddard, okay? Yeah, okay. Can I take Terman? Yeah, but then I get to tell the Yerke story. Deal. Okay, so listeners, let's go back to 1906. Goddard directed research at the Vineland Training School for Feeble-Minded Girls and Boys, which was in New Jersey. This was basically like a remedial school slash asylum for people with cognitive challenges, children with cognitive challenges. But because those categories weren't very well defined at the time, they tended to house people of a really widely varying ability. So people who might be diagnosed today with things we know are manageable, like say a learning disability or a severe anxiety disorder, as well as people with more severe disabilities who might never be able to live unassisted. So Goddard is working with this really wide range of ability, and he was desperately trying to find a way to assess these children. He had heard about Binet's work, and in 1910, he translated the Binet exam from French to English and began administering it at Vineland. His most memorable work, The Calacac Family, showed his use of the Binet scale as he talked about Deborah, this 22-year-old woman who'd been at Vineland for 14 years. In describing Deborah, he says, Eric, want to read this quote for us too? (laughs) This is from page 11 and 12 of the book. Okay. By the Binet scale, this girl showed in April 1910 the mentality of a nine-year-old with two points over. And then he goes on to describe her as, quote, the kind of girl or woman that fills out reformatories. They are wayward. 
They get into all sorts of trouble and difficulties, sexually and otherwise. And yet, we have been accustomed to account for their defects not on the basis of viciousness, environment, or ignorance. End quote. Then, he goes on to talk about how in school... A teacher might think someone like Deborah could be reformed, but in fact, she was a hopeless case. No, he claims. Instead, her condition is the result of what he calls heredity, mm. bad stock. And he expresses huge concern over the polluting effects of such poor genes on society. So this book was really all about the hereditary nature of feeble-mindedness and the threats it poses to society. In other words, a type of eugenics. Bum, bum, bum. Goddard started using the tests in public schools in New Jersey, and he consulted with Ellis Island public health authorities about testing immigrants where, to everyone's surprise, <gasps> they found tons of defectives, especially folks coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. He gads defectives. <laughs> now, while Goddard is mostly interested in measuring degrees of mental deficiency, Lewis Terman, who is the West Coast translator of those Binet tests, Terman was interested in more in a more strictly eugenic purpose. He wanted to identify the most and the least intelligent members of society. Terman was a psychologist. He was a Stanford professor of education. He published his expansion all the way to 90 questions and revision of those intelligence tests in 1916. He called it the Stanford Binet exam, and he borrowed the idea of the intelligence quotient, or IQ, as the mental age divided by the chronological age from a German scholar. Aha! So this is where we actually get the term IQ? Yeah. Ah, I've been waiting for it this entire episode. It's, it's true. This is where we get IQ from, but Terman didn't do much to it. His big advancement was just to multiply the figure by 100. And that gave the whole dividing up stuff an easily recognizable value that could be used to compare individuals or groups. So he assigned specific score ranges to different mental levels. The mentally impaired would score somewhere between 50 and 70 on the Stanford Binet, while geniuses would have an IQ of 140 or more. So there's no question here that intelligence testing was on the upswing in this period of the tw early 20th century. But... What I always find really fascinating about this period is that no one actually knew what they were measuring. That's a good point. <laughs> they didn't really care too much about it back then either. But since that time, we've come to recognize the biases in these tests and the fact that intelligence could fall into different realms for humans, like emotional intelligence or social intelligence. But at this moment, what mattered was that psychologists now had a way to assign what they were calling general intelligence, the little g, a number. And that number could be used in many, many ways. This was what was going on when an opportunity presented itself. The U.S. entered World War I in April of 1917. Little G sounds like a rap name. So in April of 1917, the president of the American Psychological Association at the time was a guy named Robert Yerkes. He saw intelligence testing recruits for the Army as a great way to enhance the prestige of psychology, making it into a kind of medicine, which was the career that he had intended to start off and follow. You know, I started out in pre-med before spending two years with physicians as a corpsman in the Navy. After that, I didn't want anything to do with them. So I tried to do <laughs> psychology like Yerkes did when I got out of the Navy. Thank God that the intro to psych course at Berkeley was full, and I ended up in the intro to physical anthro instead. That's how I became an anthro. Anthropologist. Hmm. I became an anthropologist by studying leprosy, but that's a different story. And I became an wait a second, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> wait, back to the IQ story. 
Okay, so it's only two weeks after the United States entered into World War I, and Yerkes convened a meeting in Philadelphia with seven psychologists to hash out how they would contribute to this new war effort. Yerkes pushed the notion that they could use the Binet test to weed out the feeble-minded from their recruits. Hmm. Unfortunately, the testing that he was used to was one-on-one interviews, and that is what Yerkes initially proposed to the Army, but the Army was processing thousands of recruits every day, and so his proposal was not well-received, and besides, there was no real funding available to reconvene the group. So it looked for a little bit in 1917 that intelligence testing was just going to die, which is probably the death it deserved. Yeah, totally. But but then a month after the Philadelphia meeting was over, Henry Goddard stepped in and provided some of his resources at Vineland to Yerkes and five other psychologists as they were trying to come up with a plan they could sell to the army. This group was different from the first one in that all the psychologists that were invited were general intelligence enthusiasts, including Lewis Terman. Uh Uh-huh. At that that point in time, Terman had a graduate student named Arthur Otis who was working on the Stanford-Binet test to try and make it available for use in group settings in public schools. Otis borrowed a newfangled technique from a University of Kansas education professor. The multiple choice question. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, oh wait. no. That's good. We like both. <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Terman brought Otis's new scales to Vineland, and he was able to convince the group of the simplicity of administering and scoring intelligence tests with questions that allowed for you to circle only one unambiguous answer. Thus were born the Army Alpha and Beta tests. Those were just fancy sounding names they used to denote the test for people who could read, alpha tests, and the test for those who couldn't, the beta test. They relied really heavily on Terman's revision of the Binet scale, but they had to modify it for adults rather than for children, which is who it had been used on before. The alpha and beta tests were literally banged out over only a two-week period at Vineland. The alpha test had eight sections. Every section had eight all the way up to 40 questions and increased in difficulty. If you were illiterate or if you were a non-English speaking recruit, they gave you a beta test and the beta test used pictures, including mazes and things that had to be solved or identification of simple shapes or one where you're supposed to draw in the missing part of a picture, like they give you a house and you're supposed to draw the chimney on the house, it's missing a chimney, or you're supposed to order a series of pictures into a coherent story. So this gets at what I was saying a minute ago about how the IQ people didn't actually know what they were measuring. These tests ended up being measures of familiarity with cultural features common to upper-class white Americans rather than actual measures of intelligence. We'll link to some of the drawings in the show notes so listeners can get a sense of these. But a good example is this picture they provide of a multi-tool pocket knife That's and a revolver. Crazy. Neither of which I would know how to complete because I haven't spent a lot of time with I those know, tools. Right? It totally measures just, did you see this thing before or not? Right. And of course, people who were not from the U.S. hadn't seen those things as much before. So they came out looking less intelligent. Exactly. After creating the tests, the psychologists took off from Vineland and administered the tests to a variety of people. And Yerkes wrote up an almost 900-page report telling everybody how wonderful they were and sent that off to the Army. And finally, in August of 1917, just four months after the first meeting in Philadelphia, teams of psychologists were enlisted into the Sanitary Corps... (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> much to Yorkie's chagrin, Politic since he justice. really wanted to be in the medical corps, and the testing began in earnest. Yorkie's was commissioned as a major, and Carl Brigham, who was a Princeton psychologist and first lieutenant, was assigned as his assistant. They managed to have the test administered to 1,726,966 men, Holy <laughs> which is a lot. Yeah. Um, to bring all this back to the question of race, in addition to the intelligence questions, they, of course, collected data on race, country of origin, salary before the war, occupation, those kinds of things. Brigham's 1923 analysis of a subsample of that group represents some of the worst of the eugenic and racist notions that were prevalent in that era. Of course, 1.7 million data points in the pre-computer age was a bit daunting, but he did use almost a quarter of a million of the tests. Eric is our resident quote reader. Can you read some of Brigham's statements about race, please? This should be like a meme or something. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to make a meme out of it. All right. Here we go. Ready? Here's Brigham. It, It is also possible to make a picture of the elements now entering into American intelligence. At one extreme, we have the distribution of the Nordic racial group. I actually didn't know that was a racial group. At the other extreme, Hmm. we have the American Negro. Between the Nordic and the Negro, but closer to the Negro than the Nordic, we find the Alpine and the Mediterranean types. Uh, Here, a little bit later on, he says, we must face a possibility of racial admixture here that is infinitely worse than that faced by any European country today. For we are incorporating the Negro into our racial stock, while all of Europe is comparatively free from this taint. Well, not subtle. Not subtle. No. And strangely familiar. (laughs) So one of the findings that comes out of these alpha and beta tests was just how alarmingly stupid the American public was. As Terman put it, I guess I'll read this quote too, it appears that feeble-mindedness as at present defined is of much greater frequency of occurrence than had been originally supposed. The test scores placed about 47% of white GIs and 89% of black GIs in the category labeled moron. Well, and more on that later. <laughs> nice fun. <laughs> so, so here's a little factoid that students will especially appreciate. After the war, Carl Brigham became a psychology professor at Princeton, and he began adapting the Army Alpha test for use on incoming freshmen. Of course he did. <laughs> After a few years of refining it, he turned the test into the SAT, <gasps> which was administered under his supervision in 1926 for the very first time. That's where the SAT comes from. <laughs> I know, right? It's probably not a coincidence that some of the same criticisms about racism in these tests have been leveled at the SAT as were offered for the Army tests, including even the idea I keep talking about, which is that these tests often seem to measure familiarity with cultural context or even familiarity with the testing mechanism as much as they measure some inborn capacity. Some of the early creators and analysts of the IQ test came to regard them as not being measurements of inborn capacity. Both Brigham and Terman reversed course by the early 1930s. In a 1930 article that was a scathing review of the interpretation of the meaning of intelligence tests, after basically ripping psychologists a new one as <laughs> testing as some kind of innate inherited capacity, Brigham said, uh, and I'm afraid to read this now since Eric is our quote reader. You better read it, Eric. Comparative studies of various national and racial groups may not be made with existing tests, which show that one of the most pretentious of these comparative racial studies, the writer's own, 
was without foundation. <laughs> Dang. Wow. Well, I guess we'll leave it at that for the moment. But next time, we'll spend more time looking at what has happened to race and IQ since the mid-20th century. It looks like it's going to go away, right? It looks like at the end of this that... Everybody's... By the 1930s, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, it seems like, oh, we're criticizing even our own tests. So clearly the path must be the decline of intelligence testing, right? <laughs> if only. Yeah. We're even going to get back to Arthur Jensen at some point, the guy Jim almost ran into. Except for the tear gas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the buckshot. That sounds terrifying. It was. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Race. And don't forget that we'll post in the show notes some information about the current spate of, what would you even call that, controversy around Elizabeth Warren's DNA test results. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back soon with the next portion of the conversation about race and intelligence. 